You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Icons, Harlem Renaissance in Motion, a classical theater of Harlem production in collaboration with the Venus Radio Theater. My name is Ty Jones, the producing artistic director of the Classical Theater of Harlem, and I am delighted to be presenting this wonderful and important monologue series. CTH commissioned playwrights to create seven original monologues based on figures from the Harlem Renaissance. The monologue you're about to hear is written by Marcus Scott and is entitled Chimerical Colors, Archibald Motley at the End of the Rainbow. This monologue takes place on a day sometime in the late 1970s as the famed visual artist reflects on his life and contributions to the Harlem Renaissance. Please enjoy Chimerical Colors, Archibald Motley at the End of the Rainbow. What is modern art? I don't know about all of that. Folks call me a modernist. Thing is, modern means being in the present, truly being in the moment, in the now. I've always had my eyes on the horizon. I'm a person that thinks light years into the future. Some might say, by definition, that makes me some type of a futurist. I don't look to tomorrow or to next week or a few months from now or even a year from now. My future vision is always further down the timeline. Keep in mind, it's 1977, and I'm not the man I was in 1927. I knew what I wanted to do when I was nine years old, ever since I was in the fifth grade. I didn't want to be a railroad man like my father, a school teacher like my mother, I didn't want to be an engineer, nor an architect, nor a medical doctor. I certainly had no interest in writing, not like my brother Willard. No, I paint, and with the final stroke of the brush, therein lies the statement, the manifesto, the pièce de résistance, the epitaph. You know that old saying by Confucius, the Chinese philosopher, that a picture is worth 10,000 words. A lot of art, well, is not worth 10. Pretty is fine, but it's decorative. Art, real art tells a story. Real art has a narrative. Real art is about wool gathering, poetry in motion, and the artist behind the painting mustn't only be master of spin, but a griot, a sorcerer of storytelling. An ocular fantasia in the right hands can magnify the mindscape of a people. When you sit with one of my works, really sit with the saturation of the hues and shades and contrasts, you've accepted an invitation to the campfire where infinite possibilities and endless yarns abound where fact and fiction gamble in a frenzy of light and color, and all the characters involved 
are unreliable narrators and a web of mystique and intrigue. Sure, there's a lot of red tape and murky gray in the land of amber waves of grain and purple mountain majesties, but waving white flags won't get you closer to greener pastures. When I was coming up in the art world, in many ways, when I sat down at the canvas, trying to capture the transgressive push and pull of the urban nocturnes I become known for, I was trying to capture the Rashomon effect of my bygone Chi-Town youth, an upbringing that provided me with a superpower of social camouflage many of my peers were not privy to. I'm safe. I can blend, shapeshift, more or less hide in plain sight. Born and raised on the perimeter between blithely privileged suburban ennui and the melancholic madness of dilapidated housing projects surrounded by turf wars and teeming with police, being safe provided me with an in-depth understanding that I had certain educational and socioeconomic privileges than most. It helps that I am well-liked, the kind of fella you'd want to clink a glass of scotch with if the occasion presented itself. This safety provided me with a hunger to enact a goal of mine, to use these advantages to uplift the colored community, to break down preconceived notions of our otherness, to expose our humanity with a vast spectrum of light and color. To clarify, I was never a follower of the cult of tradition that Americans, particularly my Negro brothers and sisters in the struggle, are so attuned to. I believe, no. I knew, even since I was a little tyke, that working with the system, being excellent, was more than enough. One of the youngins on the TV said something to the effect of, The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. I take umbrage. I take umbrage with that because, well, for some of us, and I include myself in this, that's not only how we survived, but how we thrived. Rising to the stars on parachutes of prosperity, because we became blacksmiths of the same backhanded boondoggle flanked against us, forging our freedom with the very tools in Master's shed. Then again, I have the luxury. I am well aware of my advantages, that is certain. I'm not an ignorant man by any means. Everyday people and everyday circumstances for a colored man like myself in those days were quite unusual. Being in those spaces, a mulatto Negro growing up on Chicago's South Side, raised in a predominantly white neighborhood, attending predominantly white primary and secondary schools, part of the only colored family living within a radius of about three miles one might imagine that my experience was fraught, like the Tenere tree swaying in the big empty of the Sahara, a one-man battle royale against the elements, nature, time, man. One might think in this city, at that time, in the years prior to the First World War, 
that growing up was a death by a thousand paper cuts. This wasn't the case for me. A red-boned colored man with butterscotch complexion and bourbon-colored eyes from New Orleans. Creole blood swimming in his veins. Most of my friends coming up were young Italians. We'd fellowship together, played together, looked after each other. It was like a small gated community. Didn't really have much connection to. That's not to say I didn't know where me and the folks stood in all this. Believe it, I got a first-rate education in towing the line between the borderlines and boundaries, the culminations and consequences that came with being a polka-dotted, melanated Negro in the Midwest. During the race riots, what James Weldon dubbed Red Summer, my family had quarantined and were virtually rendered housebound over a week, curtains drawn, doors locked, pistols ready. Back then, everything was so fraught, full of social tension and whatnot. We weren't doing so hot in this great nation. Our armed forces was fresh from the First World War. We were in a financial slump. There was competition in the housing market, competition in the workplace and labor revolt. And you know, Chicago was only so big, and we were on top of each other like roaches. Naturally, the fat cats got crafty, and soon you started seeing brothers and sisters clocking in, working on the front lines, and all the out-of-work European-American men who couldn't feed their families started getting real resentful saying the Negroes and the colored were scabbing the unemployed. Add to that, the police didn't come up round those parts much, not that they didn't have to. And the gangbangers and hoodlums started up. Colored folk started getting attacked. People who looked like me. People who looked like Willard. Things really started popping off like bottle rockets on July 27 on South Side Beach, the 29th Street Beach. Now, this was 1919. Things was different then, like things will be different than they are now. Some carefree colored boy, Eugene, came to the beach with his friends and made a raft that they constructed to play on. And if you know anything about Lake Michigan, you know you can drift away very easily. There was a segregated, unspoken, whites-only beach nearby. And when the raft drifted into the white side of the beach, an indignant, ignorant white man who was about the same age as me at the time, named George Stauber, started throwing stones at the boys. Other white folk joined in. Eugene slipped off the raft and into the water. Maybe he was a poor swimmer, who knows? Or maybe he couldn't resurface to get some air because the rocks kept a coming. But one of the rocks struck him good as he tried to get to shore. And he drowned. The body of that 17-year-old boy was floating. 
like a cloud of jellyfish at the top of the surface. Black onlookers were outraged. They called the cops on Starber, but when a white police officer showed up, he refused to make the arrest. Starber just murdered a child in cold blood out in the open where everyone could see, and the officer just stood there. Anger on the black side escalated. Passion quelled. The white officer called for reinforcements. Fury expanded, fuses lit, and the flame ignited. This heartbroken fella, James Crawford, pulled out a gun and shot into the group of policemen. To help restore order, they called in a black policeman, and he shot Crawford dead. Soon after, a crowd of angry white men, many of them Irish and armed to the teeth, drove down to 35th Street, beating any Negro and colored folk they encountered senselessly, sending fires to their homes and businesses, and the police did nothing. This went on for over a week. Usually, colored folk would sit silent, wait it out, be nonviolent. But this time, the mob encountered something it hadn't expected. Resistance from young Negro war vets who broke into an armory, seizing weapons to counter these angry white men. This was the first time Northern Negroes fought back and were successful. I'm talking about young black reserves who fought combat in France as part of the National Guard's Fighting Eighth. The Germans used to call these fellas black devils because they were speed demons on the battlefield. They could shoot you between the eyes without so much as flinching. Eventually, those angry white men from the west side stopped coming to the south side now that the Negroes and colored folks started fighting back. And I for an eye. When the gun smoke cleared, and the embers of the last fire simmered to ash. There were more than 350 casualties, and some 1,000 Negro homes had been burned down to the ground, leaving many of us homeless without food, drink, or shelter. Our home stood tall like it always did before the blood and the bullets and the arson, but the weight of it? My father carried other people's paraphernalia all his life, carried other people's secrets all his life, carried other people's hopes and dreams all his life, even with a bum leg and a broken heart. But he never quite carried himself the same way after that week from hell. Only saw my father afraid a couple of times before he transitioned to the pearly gates. That was one of them. The other was during the so-called war to end all wars, when I was home from school during vacation. Father asked me to accompany him on a series of railroad trips. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Hoboken, virtually every state in the Union. He was Pullman Porter on this old train called the Wolverine. And when you're traveling, you encounter new challenges, new conditions. 
we stopped in Georgia. Waited for a streetcar down there in Atlanta on Peachtree Street. And while boarding, I must have forgotten myself. And apparently the laws of the South. You see, I was reading a newspaper. I wasn't concentrating and accidentally entered the front. In those days, colored folk weren't supposed to enter the front. Well, this conductor yelled, Get your high yellow nigger ass over here! Using all of the vile, filthy, degrading language in his arsenal. Look at this fucking big-lipped, watermelon-eating, half-breed octoroon coon. You must be one of those smart-uns. I was so embarrassed. I honestly felt like a fool. I just didn't realize. He droned on and on, making sure everybody in the car knew he was in control, making sure to put me in my place. After a while, I began to get angry. I used to have quite a temper back in my youth. Before I went to swinging, my father grabbed me. Hold on, Arch. Don't do that. You're in the South now. I'd like to see you around for a few years longer. I was so angry. So hurt. So humiliated. I locked myself in the bathroom and cried as if I lost a child. Didn't really get to be around my own kind, really, until about fifth grade. There was a pool room. I used to take my lunch, go over there, and people watch. There'd be nothing but colored men there. Matter of fact, the owner was colored. I used to make sketches and draw the characters at this haunt around 35th and State Streets. In order to study them, draw them, learn from them, I made it a habit to go to places where they gathered as I journeyed through the streets of Bronzeville. Churches, movie houses, dance halls, juke joints, skating rinks, basketball courts, gambling houses. Watching these men... I learned how they turned a phrase, listened to the cadence of their jive mother tongue, the lyrical liberation of our mean, and most importantly, I discovered our wonderful senses of humor. How these men express themselves, I die laughing. There's no one funnier than black people, and these men would make you howl. I didn't know it yet but I was building an aesthetic through them, these paragons of blackness. At the Art Institute of Chicago, I studied George Bellows, John Sloan, Randall Davey. I worshipped at the throne of Rubens, Michelangelo, and kissed the rings of Dutch masters like Franz Hals, Delacroix, and Rembrandt. If the Dutch masters were jazz... Rembrandt was the bass, and Howells the treble, and I painted with every undertone in their symphony. I learned about flesh tones, how they captured the remarkable beauty of the human psyche in a wash of intense chroma, outrageously explosive gestures, and hyper-rhythmic composition. 
Through them, I observed how the light travels on the pigmentation of the skin, how gradually the light shapeshifts and metamorphs from volcanic warmth into a cryogenic cool in the faces of their subjects. But it wasn't until I came to Harlem where the tide shifted and my so-called education truly bloomed. Looking out across the nightlife, the hell mouth of Harlem bared its fangs like a vampire on the prowl, and the social creatures lurking in the dead of the darkness, meandering on city streets or clustered in congested cabarets, radiated with opulent juar de vibe. This was the place to be, the black mecca. Or so I heard, I was merely visiting. I had a few breakthroughs in my career at this point, and with my voyage to Harlem, I became the first Negro to have a one-man exhibit in the Big Apple, and was more than willing to take a bite. Though, I didn't think it would make as much of an impression as it did. Out of the 26 paintings at the exhibit, I sold 22. My clientele expanded, and suddenly, my patrons included the likes of Ralph Pulitzer and Carl Hamilton. Suddenly, I was the toast of the art world and heralded as a poster child of the new Negro movement. Only the locals didn't take kindly to me at first. I think it was more a matter of jealousy. Rumors got around, none of them true, reverberated like shockwaves throughout Harlem from Le Petit Senegal to Lenox Avenue. This group of self-righteous New York City colored artist folks were jealous because I landed this exhibition. Oh, they were very jealous of me as they can be. They made it feel like this success was unwarranted and made my life hell. I get it, though. You got all of these talented Negroes who traveled all this way to Chi-Chi Harlem, the most chandelier-swinging invoke spot this side of the Atlantic, full of movers and shakers, and they send a colored man from Chicago's South Side to have a one-man show on their home turf? They hated me ever since. They mocked me. They mocked my education. They mocked my art. The lips are too full. It's too big. The movement's cartoonish, stereotypical, destructive, problematic. I was reclaiming our past, our identity, like graffiti on the side of a complex, to let them know that this was ours. Only I got flack for that, too. All the others painted of a promised land they never knew sculpting bodies they'd never come into contact with, illustrating pyramids, stolen gold from Egyptian pharaohs, dashikis, head wraps, wildlife safaris. I knew nothing of that, and frankly, I couldn't give a damn. I didn't want to paint Negro types. I wanted to breathe life into true art, real art with people that were here, right here, in these here states. 
with people that look like me and you. So they labeled me self-deprecating, self-deficient, self-deprived, self-disgusted, toxic. I couldn't win. I would go on to win a Guggenheim Award a couple of years later. Go to another country, rendezvous through the N.A. Fool, paint on the French Riviera, inhale the vapors of pink cigarettes at Le Luxor, while watching Lady Josephine Bababoom in the siren of the tropics, and bolt like a flash of lightning through the Louvre in record time. When I returned to Chicago, I would go on to elevate Negro consciousness, help decolonize beauty standards, usher in another renaissance by doubling down on the respect and pride of our people. My people. But among many in Harlem, I was still just another self-abased, self-abused, self-afflicted colored man who shook the right hands at the right time, parading himself as the respectable Negro. To be criticized by my own people almost makes you wonder if they're right. Always thought it would be easier for my nephew, Willard. Willard was always sort of in my shadow, lurking in the cut just out of the periphery. I love that man more than I loved myself. Willard had a wondrous amount of respect for me. That's one thing I have to say about him. I'm technically his uncle, but I looked after him like he was a kid brother. He never forgot his place. He had a wondrous amount of respect for me. When we sat down to talk over the years, I'd pitch him all the great works he'd write one day. Just like all those cats in Harlem, I used to try to get him to write more books dealing with his own race, dealing with his own people, you know, to write about Negro types. Thought it would be very good for him, for the race, for everybody. Maybe he wouldn't have had to walk the same tightrope I did. Maybe his knees wouldn't buckle under the weight of it all. But Willard like myself, was born and raised in white neighborhoods. All of his friends, chosen family, lovers, none of them were. Willard came up with a lot of young Italian types, so it's no wonder why he wrote that book, Knock on Any Door, why he wrote, Let No Man Write My Epitaph, and so forth and so on. Those were the only young people that he knew. Up until the moment he transitioned, and left this world. He had to bear the weight of all of those criticisms. A black, middle-class, closeted homosexual writing white, lower-class, horny heterosexuals? Baldwin, he was not. And they burned him and his life's work at the stake for it. Now the ashes of his legacy are scattered to the ends of the earth without any chance of reassembly. The greatest crime of his life 
no fault of his own, was that he knew more about them than he knew about his own people. He didn't gallivant down the cracked asphalt of the Black Belt, nor did he post up along the streets of Bronzeville looking to get into the latest house party, and Harlem began to fall out of fashion by the time he came of age. Maybe if I led with more pride. Maybe if I led with more conviction, more anger. Maybe Willard, maybe Willard would have loved us the way I loved him. Maybe. That thing I said earlier about the master's tools in order to illustrate the genetic roller coaster of our pan-African ancestry in a way that spoke truth to power, and because I was indoctrinated in the customs of Western portraiture, I made it my duty to explicitly recognize the nuances of human anatomy and the Negro body. I also acknowledged certain practices like phrenology, like physiognomy, these grotesque, bestial delineations of our melanated people, taking those very things that were created to degrade us, to demean us, to make us subhuman, and turn all that inside out. That's what I was doing. At least, that's what I thought I was doing. That's what I thought they'd see, you know, if they sat, really sat with the saturation of the hues and shades and contrasts and study the somewhat epicanthic folds around squinted eyes of my subjects, looked at the conical fingers, analyzed the marionette-like contorted limbs. But the fire squad of naysayers arrived, and some of my favorite work was compared to the sinister hysteria of the little black Sambo. The Negroes, who danced under the bright neon lights like it was their last night in the street scenes I become known for, were now compared to the macabre mudita of Bojangles. As if life wasn't hard living enough all the live long day, this high yellow red bone octoroon flavored mulatto has had to deal with Negroes like that. Like you! Can't see past tomorrow, let alone today, and you fix to open your mouth to judge us colors like me, like Willard, and you draw your lines in the sand. Those of us, the technicolor futurists, with our finger on the dial, our eyes focused on what lies beyond the horizon, all you middle-of-the-road modernist artists with your quasi-abstract Dalmatian black-and-white monochrome and so-called negritude, your art barely leaving only a semblance of what can only be described as bleeding Rorschach ink blots left out in the rain. You stand there, critique, play make-believe, and when the final judgment is cast... It lands on the rest of us as sound and fury, signifying nothing. So why bother? After a while, you get weary of the wind between the sails knocking you down. 
and you decide to stop fighting. Sometimes it's not just the oppressor holding you back. Sometimes the call is coming from inside the house and there's nowhere to run. Willard had to deal with Negroes like that. And look at him now. Gone. Too white to get an invite to the picnic. Never Negro or colored enough. Too gay to be treated like a real man. To be this. To be that. He flew too close to the sun. Bathed in the white hot silvery daylight before fading away into the ether. He left me to sulk in anguish to take in the golden hour before my final sunset here on this earth. If I was the base, he was the treble. But now that the future is here, the music has grown faint, the colors dulled, and I've reached the peak of the horizon. When I was younger, I was immortal. I was infinite, and the uprising stirring inside of me gave me permission to explore the impossible, to create Fantasia. I don't know what a modernist is, but maybe you'll get to know me if you sit, really sit with the saturation of the hues and shades and contrasts. You'll find me somewhere between leisure and labor, light and dark, black and white, now and then. This is Rinaldo Pinella. I'm playing Archibald Motley. End of play. Listen, on behalf of everyone here at the Classical Theater of Harlem, we thank you for listening. We've got some great people to thank. First off, Sean Renee Graham, Literary Director of Programs. Betty Shamia, CTH's Mellon Playwright-in-Residence. This piece was adapted, produced, and edited for audio theater by Eric Emma, and the sound design and mixing by Andy Stein. This is a classical theater of Harlem production recorded in collaboration with the Venus Radio Theater. Thank you again. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this. 
Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply, not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon. 